You are listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. If you're a Christian... There's probably somebody right now who is just breaking your heart. You see them jumping from one thing to another thing to another thing, trying to be happy. Like maybe if I get out of my marriage, I'll be happy. Maybe if I get a new house, I'll be happy. And just moving from one thing to another, seeking a happiness you know they're never going to find. And you see them destroying their lives, seeking fulfillment, seeking some sort of answer to this emptiness within them as they go from one thing to the next. And you see them buying into the lie the culture has told them of you need to fulfill yourself, you need to find yourself, you need to be true to yourself. And you see where that's going and it's going nowhere. And they're breaking your heart because you know what's the answer to these problems. You know what is going to fulfill them. You know what is going to bring them happiness. You know who is going to be true to them, and that's Jesus. And you know that only Jesus can provide what they're looking for, but they refuse to listen to you. They refuse to respond to the gospel message. They might even be aggressive against you, I should say, in in saying this, being defensive when you try to talk to them. And you see them continue down this downward spiral and you ask and you pray, why won't they believe? Why won't they turn to Jesus? Why won't they see everything he has to offer? Why won't they be forgiven of their sins through Jesus? Like I said, if you're a Christian, there's probably someone on your heart that you can identify with as that. If you're not a Christian, you're breaking somebody's heart because they see that happening. If it's not a person, it's God's heart. You're breaking God's heart because he's being patient for you to turn to him. And it's this situation is where Paul is in Romans chapter 9, where he sees so many of his brothers and sisters refusing to turn to Jesus. You see, Paul was Jewish, and Paul persecuted the Christian church. And Paul believed before he was a Christian that you could save yourself by following God's law is good enough, although that was never the purpose of God's law. But Paul turns to Jesus because Jesus appears to Paul and shows him who he is. And Paul sees his former Jewish brothers or his Jewish former brothers and sisters refusing to turn to Jesus, still seeking their own righteousness. And he is in that same position of his heart is breaking. He knows where salvation truly is and they refuse to listen. And this is the problem that we're dealing with today. It's that not everybody will be saved. Not everybody is going to turn to Jesus. So let's, Start in Romans 9, we're going to dig into it later, but I want to start with just verses 1 through 5 to sort of lay out the problem here that not everybody will be saved. There are some people who reject the gospel. And that's what Paul's writing about through the Holy Spirit. So Romans 9, we'll just read 1 through 5 and then get into a little more. 
Paul writes, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So again, this is Paul. He's saying, my heart is breaking. He's saying, he has great sorrow and continual grief in his heart for his brethren, the Jews, who refuse to turn to Jesus, who still try to justify themselves by being self-righteous. And he's saying, they should know better. They're Israelites. They're God's chosen people. God gave them all these blessings, and even Jesus was Jewish. And why won't they turn to Jesus? And not everybody is going to be saved. Not everybody will be saved. And this is going to be a tough word today. So we're going to read through the majority of Romans 9 and study this. And we've been going through this Sunday nights, the book of Romans. So you're kind of stuck here. I was in Romans 8 for like a month, and that was super encouraging. So I apologize we're at Romans 9 right now, because this is a tough word. It's just where you happen to lie. And it's not everybody is going to be saved. There are some people who will not be. Romans is an essay on salvation, we might say. It's a letter written by Paul the Apostle through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Rome and outlines better than any book in the Bible what is salvation, how that happens, what are all the steps involved in there. And that's what Romans is. It's an essay on salvation. And the whole point of the letter is to prove the just shall live by faith. It's by faith we are saved, by grace from God through the sacrifice of Jesus that we're saved, not by works of the law. And he's proving that. So it's very systematic. We've been going through Sunday nights. We have chapters 1 through 3 of Romans answers the question of why we need to be saved. And 1 through 3 of Romans condemns us. It says, nobody seeks God. Nobody is righteous. Nobody pursues God. We are all sinful by nature and choice. We are all self-righteous and we are all hypocritical and we all deserve condemnation and damnation because we're sinful. Chapters 1 through 3 explains why we need to be saved. Chapters 4 and 5 of Romans is about justification, which answers the question how we're saved. And the only way we can be saved with our sinful nature is by God himself paying the price for our sin because we're not a good enough sacrifice to pay our own price. So chapter 4 and 5 is all about how through the blood of Jesus, the Bible says Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And it's only through the blood of Jesus that we can be justified which is God declaring us innocent. Justification is a one-time event where God says you are innocent from your sins because of Jesus and only because of Jesus, only by grace through faith in Jesus. Then Romans 6 through 8 is about sanctification. That's what happens after we are justified. After God has said you are innocent of the penalty of your sin, what happens after that? Because justification is a one-time thing. There's your whole life left to live, which is Romans 6 through 8 which is about sanctification, dying to sin, dying to self, growing in holiness, walking with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we're starting a new section here in Romans where it's chapters 9 through 11. And this answers the question, who? Who will be saved? And it explores this idea of election. So election, we could define this as the act of God whereby in eternity past, God chose who will be saved. 
This deals with all Romans 9 through 11 deals with not everybody is going to be saved. Who is going to be saved? Who is going to be justified and sanctified? Who exactly is going to receive that? And we don't usually emphasize this part. Romans 9 is about God's sovereign mercy. Who is saved from God's point of view? Romans 10, which will be next week, is from a human point of view. We like to focus on the human point because that seems very fair, but from God's point of view, we can get very angry about this. I know I did. I know I have been. been very angry about God choosing certain people to be saved and not choosing others. It is a harsh word, a sobering word. Now, I would say, based on this chapter, that election is unconditional. That means that God chooses people because He chooses people. Not because they're good, not because they would say yes, but because He chooses people. Some people disagree, and I'm not interested in debating that. But based on this text, I would lean to the side that God's election is unconditional. God chooses who He chooses. Now, this does not mean there are some people who want to be saved but are not. Because God gives mercy to everybody. Those who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Like I said, people do not like looking at election from God's point of view. They say it's unfair. They say God has no right to choose some people and not choose others. Non-Christians hate this. I'll tell you, I was an atheist up until like three years ago. I hated this idea that God only chooses certain people to be saved. We're very comfortable with the idea of if we reject God, then we're okay. But if God is choosing people, people do not like this. And even Christians can get very uncomfortable with this idea that God only chooses some people for salvation. And I think we do this because primarily we presume on God's grace. I think we kind of have this belief where I imagine it like a train track. And the, the train track is heading to heaven. And everybody kind of gets there. Unless you're really bad, then God pulls the switch and directs you to hell. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible teaches we're on the train headed to hell. And only because of God's mercy and grace, he pulls the lever and some of us go down the track to salvation. We presume, we think the default position of God is everyone gets salvation. Everyone gets to go to heaven, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches is we all deserve condemnation. Now the theologian A.W. Pink has a great quote dealing with these kinds of issues that I might refer back to this morning. He says, When the sun shines on a dunghill, an odious stench is the consequence. Is the sun to be blamed? So what we are, me, you, collectively, humanity, are the big giant dunghill. Should I go into Jurassic Park Triceratops? I don't, we'll just let you imagine it. We're collectively the dunghill of humanity. And we always stink. That's part of who we are. We stink. And he's saying, the sun doesn't create the stink in the dunghill. It just makes it worse. And this text is, for some of us, the sun shining on the dunghill, that is us, and showing us how deep our sin goes, the depths of our pride and our judgmentalism toward God. It reveals all that. The problem is not the sun. The problem is the dunghill. The problem is us. And that's what Jesus says, that the darkness hides from the light because the light exposes the darkness. And this is the Bible in general, but this chapter in particular can expose some of the deep, dark, dark secrets of our heart and our pride. And it's not the Bible's fault, it's not God's fault, it's our fault. So not everybody will be saved. And what we'll see here, we'll dig into it, is because God is sovereign, His mercy 
decides who is saved. So God is sovereign. That means God answers to nobody. God is in authority. God is ruling and reigning above everybody. He is sovereign. And His mercy decides who will be saved. Which is, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace, it's God's unmerited favor on your life. Because God answers to nobody and He's in complete control. It's only an act of sovereign mercy that anybody is saved. That's what we're going to see through the rest of Romans 9. So let's dig in, look at this idea of election. God choosing people before the foundations of the world, the Bible says, to be saved. It's Romans 9, 6 through 13. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise is counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. So what Paul's writing about here is referring back to Abraham. And Abraham was an old man, and God had promised him a son, a son that he will bless and his line will continue through, and eventually the Messiah, Jesus, would come through that line. And that son was Isaac, but Abraham got impatient waiting, and he decided to have another son from a different wife, who is Ishmael. And what it says here is God, Abraham had two sons. It's not just being a son, it's a chosen one. God chose Isaac. He did not choose Ishmael, just because that's how he chose it. But Paul goes further, verses 10 through 13. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So here's maybe even a better example of God's election. Because Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And they weren't even born of different mothers. They were twin brothers in the womb at the same time. And before either one were born, God says, I'm choosing Jacob, I'm not choosing Esau. The key is verse 11. Not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. You see, this is what makes it mercy. God chose Jacob before Jacob had done any good, before Jacob had done any evil. Not that he's better than Esau, but God chose him because God chose him. That's it. That's election. Before he was even born, God chose Jacob. He did not choose Esau. In fact, if you read in Genesis, from a human perspective, I'd probably choose Esau over Jacob. But God chooses Jacob. Twin brothers of the same mother, one God chooses to continue the godly line, and one, God does not, because God choose, chooses Jacob, because he is sovereign. Now, God could have chosen to save both of them. God could have chosen to save Ishmael and Isaac. God could have chosen Jacob and Esau, but he didn't. God could have cho- chosen to pick neither. God could have said, I'm done with humanity, and I pick nobody. So God could choose could have chosen to save all people, but he didn't. 
God could have chosen to save no people and he will be justified because it's because of our acts of sin and rebellion that separate us from God in the first place. So God will be perfectly just in choosing nobody. But he chooses some. He chose Isaac. He chose Jacob. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis. Even before that, God chooses Abram. Abram, before he became Abraham, was a godless pagan, a worshiping false gods, and God chooses him just because. Not because of anything Abraham did, but because God chose him. And even the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, God says, I didn't choose Israel because you're the best nation. I didn't choose you because you're a righteous nation. I didn't choose you because you're the biggest nation. I didn't choose you because I looked down the passageway of time and saw that you would say yes to me. God says, I chose you because I chose you so that I would be glorified, so that my glory would be magnified by choosing you just because I chose you, not because of anything you've done or anything you deserve, because then it's not mercy or grace. Then it's works. If we're going to believe in a salvation by faith, God chooses certain people. And even if you don't like this idea that God will choose some, this idea of election, it is biblical. We, the, the common ground here is not everybody is saved, like I said. Not everybody receives eternal life and the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of their sins through Jesus. Not everybody gets that. And if God doesn't choose certain people, then what is God preserving not to save everyone? Because the Bible says it's God's will that everybody is saved. God would rather everyone be saved and turn to Jesus. If, if it's not election, then God is preserving human free will. And you can look through the Bible. It's not that we don't have free will, but I don't see that being a high priority on God's list of having free will. What is high on God's priority list is His glory. And by Him choosing, that glorifies Him more because it's not up to us. And Jesus says in John 3, He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit entering you is what saves you, what turns you to God. And Jesus is saying, you can't always see how this works. You can't always understand. From our perspective, we don't know where the Spirit is going because it's like the wind. We can see the effects of it. We can see the change that He does in people's lives. But we don't understand it. We don't, we can't say we fully understand this idea of divine sovereignty and salvation where in the exact next chapter is human responsibility. That God is sovereign and in control, yet humans are still responsible for their actions and their rejection of God. So how should we respond to this idea of election? We should glorify God because God is bigger. He doesn't do what we expect Him to do. Look, if if we were God, we wouldn't have mercy and grace. We'd pick the people that we thought deserved it. But this makes God bigger than that. This makes God more worthy of our worship because we don't fully understand him and he is in divine control of everything and he picks who he picks. So we should glorify God when we hear about this. Secondly, we should humble ourselves and this is the hard thing. This is the conflict that we tend to make far less of God than he is and make far greater of us than we are. But see, we will not understand how great God is even as much as we magnify him and exalt him and worship him. It'll never be enough. And even as much as we claim to humble ourselves and lower ourselves, it's not going to be close to enough. But this should cause us to see God as God and us as us. And there's not a conflict there because that's who God is. So we should humble ourselves. 
Third, this should be part of our testimony. It's part of mine. It's part of everybody. See, this is, if you don't like this idea, ask anyone who's a Christian who's received the Holy Spirit. They don't say, I was working really hard and I was trying to find God and then I found Him. The Bible says no one seeks God. God seeks us. God reaches out to us. We don't love God. He loves us. That's what it says in 1 John that God loves us by sending His Son as propitiation for our sins. Love starts with God, not with us. We do not find God. See, my testimony, about three years ago, God saved me. I became a Christian. I was not seeking God. I was being disobedient, rebellious. I was an atheist, and not just like a cool atheist, but I would have made fun of you all for being here this morning. I would have made fun of myself for preaching this message. That's what I did. I listened to CSN on my way back from work and made fun of the people on it. And now this is election. Now I'm on CSN. See that? That's God's election. That God saves people. I did not choose God. God chose me. If I chose God, this wouldn't have worked out like it did. So when you talk to people, you, they always say it's God saved me. I wasn't seeking him and he found me. And so then we should fourthly praise him for his grace because this is grace. This is God's unmerited favor on our lives that he sends his son to pay the price for our sins because we're separated from him because of our sins. So Jesus lives a sinless life so he can pay the penalty of our sins so we can be reconnected with God through grace and mercy. So we should praise him for that. Now this is how we should respond. This is not how we always respond. And biblically, like we're going to read, maybe not all of us are responding to this idea in this way. And because our pride raises some objections to this idea. Like I've been saying, we're very comfortable with, we choose God. And if we choose Him, then we're saved. We're very comfortable with that. We're not as comfortable with God doesn't choose everybody. So we have a couple objections, and Paul deals with these. The first objection is, this is asked from a good heart. This objection is, does the election make God unjust? Let's read verses 14 through 18. Does this make God unjust, that he chooses some people, not everyone will be saved? It says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. So the question, again, is there unrighteousness with God? If God chooses certain people, does that make God unrighteous? Does that make him unjust? And the answer is certainly not. Paul says that a lot in this letter. Certainly not. That's the most extreme objection he could say. Certainly not. I don't know how he'd say it, but it's very intense. Certainly not. No, this does not make God unjust. And there's kind of three reasons why he says this doesn't make God unjust. First is in verse 15, that God doesn't need to show mercy or compassion to anyone. Verse 15 says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Look, God does not owe anybody mercy and compassion. Because of how much evil we've done, how much we've rejected him, how much we've, we know what he wants of us and we continue not to do it, and how much we worship and glorify ourselves rather than him, 
God is not obligated to show mercy and compassion to anybody. So the fact that he does, doesn't make him unjust. Because if we're concerned about justice with this, justice is we're all going to hell. Because that's what we deserve. That's what we have earned because of our sinful nature and our sins we commit. We're separated from God and deserve condemnation. So if we're worried about God's justice, he can be just and we can all go to hell. And we have this idea, like I mentioned earlier, that eternal life is like a participation prize. That as long as you live your life and you try your best, you'll get some sort of eternal life. That's not what the Bible says. Heaven is not a participation prize. It's only for those whose sins have been forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And we receive that by laying down our lives and letting God be God and giving our lives to Him through faith. And God doesn't need to show mercy and compassion to anyone, but He chooses some people to have mercy on, some people to have compassion. Second, it's not unjust because we're not good enough for salvation. See verse 16, So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Look, if God didn't show mercy and compassion on some people, it would be up to him who wills or of him who runs. Or we might say, it'd be up to us. It'd be up to us to try hard enough, to do good enough, to make us exalted enough that we deserve eternal life. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's every other religion teaches that, but Christianity does not. Christianity says God himself pays the price for our sins because we cannot earn it. We cannot exalt ourselves enough that we're worthy of eternal life. We're worthy of condemnation. And it's not up to him who wills nor of him who runs, but it's up to God who has mercy. And it's only by God choosing some for mercy and compassion that it is up to God. Because then again, like if it's up to us, we're choosing the ones who are going to say yes. We're choosing the ones who are pretty good people anyway. And that's not mercy, that's works. That's earning your salvation. So we have a backwards understanding in this. And rather than asking why doesn't God save everyone, we should be asking why does God save anyone? Because the first question, why doesn't God save everyone? That makes humans and our pride and sinfulness much greater than we are. And we know that we are all evil and filled with sin. But the second question, why does God choose to save some people That points us to Jesus. And that points us to that God cared enough to have mercy and compassion on people that he himself entered into human history and God the Son became the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man to pay for our sins. So asking why does God choose anyone, that directs us to Jesus. That's the better question to be asking. Injustice is about getting what we deserve. And our pride makes us unrealistic about justice. The last thing we should ask God for in our lives is justice. Justice for what we've done because we are evil and sinful and corrupt. We should look at God and glorify Him for the mercy and grace He's given and offered to all people. And thirdly, this doesn't make God unjust because He's glorified either way. So verses 17 and 18 say, The scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. And God is glorified either way. He's glorified in you getting justice, and he's glorified in you getting mercy. So what he's talking about here is from the book of Exodus, 
where God chooses to save his people from slavery, like he chooses to save his people from the slavery of sin through the blood of Jesus. He chose to save the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And he used Moses to do signs and wonders before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh continually hardened his heart and didn't let the Israelites leave Egypt. And God was glorified through that. See, people have a hard time with this. But God was glorified through Pharaoh hardening his heart and not letting Egypt leave. Because then God got to work his wonders more. God used Pharaoh for his purposes. So God is the God of justice and he's the God of mercy. And either way, God is glorified. God is glorified by sending sinners to hell. God is glorified in that. And he's also glorified in being merciful to us. Now this, again, very uncomfortable. Now that's, that's not a bad objection. Even Paul doesn't, you know, uh, rebuke the questioner of this question. Doesn't this make God unfair? No, it doesn't make God unfair. It makes God merciful and gracious. But if you're like me, there's a different question going through your head, especially me as a non-Christian. And it's doesn't this, doesn't election, doesn't God choosing some people to be saved, doesn't that make God unfair? Verses 19 through 29. We'll just read through 24 for now. 19 through 24. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? See, this is the big question, right? If God chooses certain people, why does he hold us responsible? Who can resist God? If God didn't choose me, why is it my fault for going to hell? Shouldn't God choose everybody? God is unfair for doing this. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? You see, Paul doesn't give us the answer we want. We'd rather have this explained to us. Yeah, why isn't this unfair? Why doesn't God save everyone if it's, it's, if it's in his, if it's in his power to save everybody, why doesn't he do it? This is unfair. But indeed, oh man, who are you to reply against God? The root of this question is pride. The root of this question is we want to be God and we do not want God to be God. We don't want God to make the choice of who gets saved and who doesn't. We want to make that choice. We want God's authority to decide what happens. And see, we don't have a problem with somebody being on the judgment seat as long as it's us. And we're okay with being on the judgment seat and putting God on trial and saying, God, this is not fair. You should save everybody. If I was God, I would save everybody. It's not fair that some people are going to hell or that some people are suffering this. See, you could answer it, but this, that's not really the problem. The problem is our view of ourselves and our view of God. We view God as too little and we view us as too great. If we think we have any authority to judge God on anything, how much arrogance is that? Even if you don't believe in God, to say, I can judge God, even if he doesn't exist, but if he did, I can judge him, that shows the depths of our pride and our sin and our arrogance, and it goes way back to Genesis with the fall of mankind, thinking we can be like God and put God on the hot seat and decide what's right for him to do and what's not right for him to do. So you can ask, isn't this unfair? I don't like this. But underneath all of that, underneath that question, is pride and thinking that you deserve to be God. So God is not arbitrary. Hey, God doesn't... It's not like there's some... Some people 
have an easier way of salvation or some people have a different one. You see, we, I don't know, maybe we can ask this question, except that God himself paid the penalty for our sin. How can we tell God it's unfair that some people aren't saved when God himself is offering salvation to everybody, to the world? And yeah, then there's, oh, there's this election, that kind of thing. Look, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, they work together. We don't fully understand it, but we are fully responsible for what we do. We cannot throw the unfair card at God when he is paying the price for your sin and offering it to you freely. It says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You don't even have to clean up your life. You don't have to do anything. You just have to give God his judgment seat back. You have to give God the authority in your life to be God rather than being God ourselves. So continuing verses 20 and 21, well, yeah, verses 20 and 21, Paul continues to explain. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So this is imagery going back to the Old Testament that God is the potter and people are clay. Does clay have any right to tell to the potter, why have you made me like this? Why haven't you chosen me? It even says, I think it's in Jeremiah it's, it's a funny, it's like, why, did, why didn't you give me a handle? I mean, we have all these accusations to throw against God, and he's the potter and we are the clay. But, I mean, I've heard this, we're not clay, we're people. But God's not a potter, he's God. I mean, this is an analogy. God has complete authority, we just don't want to give it to him. We want to judge God and lessen his authority in our lives. But where we stand biblically in relation to God is he is in complete control and authority over us. If you don't like it, it's because of pride. Like I said, this is the dunghill, and this we are the dunghill, and this the Bible and these verses are shining on that dunghill, making our pride come up and stink even more. Verses twenty two and twenty three. Would have God wanting to make his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared, prepared beforehand for glory. He, like I said before, God wants to show his wrath and his mercy because both glorify him. It's saying that God is patient with the vessels of wrath or the vessels of destruction in order to be further glorified. Then we'll just finish off the section 24 to 29. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. Because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So the point, these are all quotations from the Old Testament. Paul is saying, yeah, God decides who who will be saved, but everyone, anyone can receive forgiveness. Especially verses 25 and 26. Look, it says, God is saying, I will call them my people who are not my people. God is picking the people who aren't his to call 
His own people. He's choosing us through the blood of His Son to adopt us as His sons and daughters to receive our eternal inheritance. He says, I will call her beloved who is not beloved. Have you ever been not beloved? God is saying, I will call you beloved. And in the place, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Look, salvation is a free gift open to anyone and everyone. You know, we can get into, you know, God chooses some, but here's the thing. Here's like the bottom line. From our point of view, we do not know who God is choosing. So this offer is extended to everybody and everyone. He is willing to call those who are not his people, his people. He's willing to call those who are not beloved, to call them beloved. And those who are not his people to be his sons. So to conclude, read in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about Jesus, and Jesus gives mercy. And Jesus, anyone who asks Jesus for mercy, he gives mercy. Jesus never turns down anyone who is asking for mercy. It says, I will be merciful on whom, or I will show mercy on whom I shall show mercy. I'm misquoting that, but you get the point. If you want mercy, you ask for it. A few verses later in Romans, which is quoted from the Old Testament, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Look, there's not going to be anybody who is in hell saying, I wish I was one of the elect. I wish God would have chose me. I wanted to be saved, but God didn't choose me. Jesus never denies anybody who asks for mercy. So if you want mercy, ask him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But there is one person who wanted mercy and didn't get it. I was a little misleading before. There's one person. And this is the rich man in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that there was a rich man who never turned to God, who, who wasn't loving to his brothers and sisters and who didn't give generously to a poor man who begged at his gates. See, Jesus tells the story of this rich man going to the place of the dead. And he wanted mercy, not because he was repentant, but because he was in pain. And he wanted his own pain alleviated. He wanted someone to dip their finger in water and put it on his tongue so he wouldn't feel his pain. That person was denied mercy. He said, Abraham, who was in there with him in the, in the story, says, you had your chance for mercy. See, the Bible says in Hebrews, there's one death and one judgment. There will be a time when it's too late to ask for mercy, but it's not too late now. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I think this maybe is best summed up in Exodus 34, where God, this is God himself talking to Moses, explaining himself to Moses. So this is God explaining himself, which is awesome. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. God is merciful and gracious. Long-suffering, he is patient with us, waiting for us all to turn to him, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, we like that part. That's God saying, I will forgive anyone who asks forgiveness. I will have mercy on who I have mercy. But there's another half of this we don't like as much. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But God is the God of justice and the God of mercy. He is glorified whether you receive justice or whether you receive mercy. God is both. 
Now, if you're not a Christian, this doesn't deny your responsibility. You don't get to pull the, I'm not one of the elect card before God. This does not deny responsibility. You see, the Bible teaches both that there's divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Again, chapter 10 of Romans next week talks about that, the human side of this. Now, a few years ago, before I was a Christian, I would be raging right now. I I would probably have turned off the radio or whatever. I wouldn't still be listening because I would be completely against this idea that it's not fair. I would have been judging God, saying it's not fair that God didn't choose me. And we can say that as non-Christians, that we can say, but God didn't choose me. There's no way. I, I said that four years ago. We don't know when and how God is going to work. You have your whole life for the Holy Spirit to work in you, for you to soften your heart, for you to turn to Him. Just because there's this idea of elect does not deny your responsibility. You are still responsible. From our perspective, we don't see how God works. And God may be worried. I would say if you're here, if you're listening, God is doing something in you to draw you to Him. Because when I didn't believe in God, I listened to things about God an awful lot for someone who doesn't think He exists. I mean, I'm not really learning about arguments to disprove Santa Claus, right? But as a non-Christian, I'm listening to stuff about God and learning about Jesus so I can have ammunition to fight against it. But if it's not real, it's not real. You don't need to listen. So if you're listening or if you're here, God is drawing you to Him. And now you turn to Him and ask for mercy and forgiveness of your sins. The Christians, you know what this means for us, that God has chosen us before the foundations of the world, it says, before God even created the world, He knew that we would rebel against Him and that we would sin against Him and still He created us and still He sends His Son, Jesus, to pay the price for our sins so we could be forgiven and chosen by Him in order to be with Him on the new earth and to receive a glorified body where there's no sickness, no sorrow, no suffering, no pain. God has chosen us for that because He is merciful and gracious. There's no other reason why God would choose someone like me or you. God wouldn't choose us but He, based on our own works, but He chooses us based on His grace and His mercy. And this has nothing to do with you. God is sovereign and He is leading us and He's guiding us and He chose us. Look, there's this apathy or uh, apprehensiveness of, I don't know, worship and involvement in church and in service. Look, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is He changes people. There will be change in your life. And the things you used to hate, you now love because God loves. And the things that you used to rebel against, now you don't want to because God doesn't want you to. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit living within them. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not converted to Christianity at some point in their life. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't experience change in their life. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not chosen by God to be part of His kingdom. So we respond to this, like I said, by glorifying Him, worshiping, serving. There should not be this apathy about it, but an excitement that God has chosen us to be His people. And we who are not a people are now a people and we're gathered here together to be a people for God. We need to live in that identity because when we live outside the Holy Spirit, that's when we feel condemned and separated from God because that's what we deserve. When we're following what the Spirit says, what the Holy Spirit is guiding us and leading us, then there is joy and rejoicing 
knowing that God has chosen us because he is gracious, not because we're good, but because he's gracious and merciful has nothing to do with us. So let's not get full of ourselves that God chose us. Let's get full of God because he is merciful and gracious. And this also tells us it's not our duty to save people. Jesus saves people. God chooses people. We don't know how he's going to work. So we just do the work. Now at the end of Romans 9 through 11 is all about this idea of election, who God chooses to be saved. And I want to end today with how Paul ends on this. Because a big problem, I think we can accept this idea that God chooses some people and some people are not chosen. But we object because of our pride like we've gone over. But here's how we should conclude it. Here's how Paul concludes it through the Holy Spirit and the writing of Scripture at the end of chapter 11 when he's gone through written all these things about election. Paul says this. He bursts into praise. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. He bursts into praise because God is far greater than we could ever imagine. And we are far less than we could ever imagine. But God loves us anyway and forgives our sins anyway through the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God. That you have mercy on people when we don't deserve your mercy. We don't deserve your grace. Yet because you are merciful and gracious, you freely give us those things and those gifts through the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, for those of us who are Christians, I pray you just work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit to worship you and glorify you and exalt you and serve you and do the work that you've called us to do. And Father, for those who are not Christians, I pray that you continue working in them through the power of the Holy Spirit to turn them towards your Son, Jesus. Show them that you will have mercy on them. You do have mercy on them. And anyone who asks for mercy will not be denied. So we praise you, God, and we thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or give us a call at 800-357-4226. There's also a video of today's teaching available on our website, theriverchristianfellowship.com, and then click the media button. Don't forget to catch the evening service at 7 p.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship live on CSN.